Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I'm your host, Bob Sadowick. Today, my guest is U.S. Congressman Eric Swalwell, who currently represents California's 15th Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives and was first elected to Congress in November 2012. His top priorities include national security, intelligence, criminal justice reform, voting rights, LGBT equality, comprehensive immigration reform, and protecting a woman's right to make her own health care decisions. The congressman currently serves on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, the House Judiciary Committee, and the House Homeland Security Committee, in addition to a variety of policy subcommittees and a member of several progressive and bipartisan caucuses. Mr. Swalwell was raised in what is now California's 15th Congressional District. His father, a police officer, and his mother, an administrative assistant, raised four sons, Eric being the oldest. He attended public schools, and as a result of earning a Division I soccer scholarship to the University of Maryland, he became the first person in his family to attend college. After completing his education, he returned home to serve as the Alameda County District Attorney for seven years. He also served on a variety of commissions and was elected to the Dublin, California City Council before ultimately being elected to the U.S. Congress. As a leader in the House, the congressman has embraced social media such as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, along with other technologies, allowing him to remain in constant contact with his constituents on the other side of the country. Congressman Eric Swalwell, welcome to Breaking Protocol. Thanks so much, Bob, for having me. Well, I appreciate you being here. And you know, typically, I like to start with a little history on your background, family, upbringing, that sort of thing. But today, we have truly real breaking news. And that is that the House of Representatives is voting or has voted or is voting in a few minutes on the actual COVID relief bill. That's correct. We're going to get it done today. That's right. And we're going to pass that thing today. Is that right? We're going to pass it today. uh, But uh, as a double bonus, uh, we're also going to pass the background check bill. Oh, that's outstanding. We'll we'll get into some of that, but I want to I want to jump right into the COVID relief bill itself and its lack of bipartisanship. If we can talk about that for a few minutes, sure. Uh, I'm going to take you through some numbers, and if I if I'm wrong in any way, please correct me as we go through this. But the COVID relief bill passed the House, and then it went to the Senate strictly along party lines with Republican leaders in the Senate calling it an overreach and claiming that only 9% of the funding in the bill actually addressed COVID relief. Now, the Senate eliminated the initiative for a $15 an hour federal minimum wage, and which I'm going to get in, we're going to talk about that later, and reduced the unemployment benefit by $100 a week. Is there any objections from progressive Democrats in the House in supporting those changes? No. And I think they understand, I understand as a progressive in the House, that the need is there and and we need to deliver it as soon as possible. Bob, what's so interesting is that 
for these faux Republican objections, this bill is almost identical in scope as to multiple COVID relief bills that passed with bipartisan support under President Trump. So what has changed? Well, what has changed is that uh, we have President Biden now and the Republicans seem hell-bent on doing anything they can to torpedo his legislative agenda. And second, I think this is an effort to prove to themselves that they can be united on something because they're certainly not united on the legacy of President Trump or his future in the party. They're not united on how to address QAnon and white nationalism. Uh, and so they're learning the wrong lessons uh, of their disunity uh, by uniting bizarrely against something that uh, 40% of Republicans uh, support uh, across the country. And so I think President Biden was correct to seek uh, and define unity as consensus among Americans, not consensus among partisan Republicans. Speaking of partisan Republicans, Congressman Ted Budd, along with several other Republicans in the House of Representatives and Republican leadership, as I mentioned, are claiming that 91% of this relief package is not COVID-related. But based on reporting by Jason Puckett of WTHR-TV, the actual numbers of the $1.9 trillion relief package are $265 billion is identified for testing, treatment, vaccine production, PPE, and other distribution, which is 8.5% of the legislation. Then there's $420 billion in direct stimulus payments, $350 billion in unemployment benefits, $130 billion provided for schools to assist in reopening based on COVID protocols. That's a total of $900 billion of the $1.9 trillion in what I would argue is COVID-related support. Now, finally, there are those that claim that $110 billion increase in child tax credit is a non-COVID-related cost to the taxpayer, along with the roughly $200 billion in unspecified additional spending being not COVID-related. That would be a total of 16%. How do you feel about that breakout? And do you think that these... $900 billion going to stimulus, unemployment, reopening of schools, t child tax credit. Are these COVID-related expenses? Absolutely. And again, it, it attacks with what we did in 2020 uh, in a bipartisan way under, um, under President Trump. There was state and local relief. There was relief for small businesses. There was testing and treating before there was a vaccine. Now we've included the vaccine. There was uh, direct payments to families who needed it the most. Uh, and all, and it's clear that across America, uh, you know, this virus uh, has taken on a K-shaped like effect in our economy, which is that those who are doing well uh, are doing just as well or better, and those who were on the edge uh, have gone over uh, and are in real uh, trouble. Hospitality industry, for example, eighty percent unemployment. Uh, so the direct payments are needed. The unemployment insurance. There's a straight line between. COVID and unemployment in this country. And on the child you know, relief part, the child tax credit uh, relief, I think you can justify that by nature of the childcare costs uh, that have been incurred for families because either schools are closed uh, or parents are working uh, from home and it's just changed the dynamics of uh, care or the availability 
uh, of care. So I feel comfortable with with all of those. And again, I, I think it's just unfortunate that their objection is just a reflexive anti-Biden who many of them cannot even acknowledge publicly is a legitimately elected president. Have you had any conversations, and you don't have to mention any names, but have you had a specific conversation with any Republican colleague of yours who gave you specific opposition to the bill as far as what they would want removed from the bill in order to vote for it? And would you agree with them on that? Yeah. One line of attack is that you're incentivizing people to not work uh, because of the unemployment insurance benefit. And, and I, I just, that may be the case in a small number of anecdotes. And, you know, the plural of anecdote is not data. Uh, and so there is no evidence that there's widespread decision-making to not work because unemployment is better. I think most Americans uh, understand that, you know, one, they, they like the dignity of work and the purpose in providing. Two, the stability of having a job uh, and the benefits, whether it's healthcare uh, or uh, other benefits that come along uh, with that. So, and also in many states, if you are refusing to come back to work when your job is offered to you, uh, you are not able to collect that unemployment benefit. So again, I, I think that's an excuse, not really a reason. You're going to pass the bill today. How long will it take for those who are truly out here wondering how they're going to pay their next rent payment? How long will it take before they get those checks? Do you have any idea? The administration promises that if we get this done today, president signs it either later today or tomorrow, those checks can go out before the end of the month. So here we are, uh, March 10. Uh, so in the next 20 days, uh, and, and that is uh, relief that, as I said, uh, is desperately needed. And then how long will the unemployment benefit continue to? Uh, that goes, I believe, into September. Yeah, so into uh, the end of quarter three of the calendar year. So let's circle back a little bit. You grew up in California. And prior to pursuing your career in the U.S. House of Representatives, you served as a very active member of your community on a variety of committees. You were elected to the City Council of Dublin, California. You grew up in what one might refer to as a really traditional kind of Aussie and Harriet life. Your dad was a police officer. Your mother was an administrative assistant. You have three brothers. You were the first to go to college as a result of a Division I soccer scholarship. Can you reflect back on those experiences, the way you were raised, and what is it that through those experiences do you feel provided you with the foundation to best serve your constituency and the American people in the U.S. Congress? I was fortunate to have a father uh, who also committed himself to public service, but in a different way, you know, walking a police beat. And the best experience I had that would guide me and guides me for the rest of my life uh, was my earliest memory, which was my father was a police chief in a small town in Iowa. And he was taking on small town, good old boy network corruption and ran head into a corrupt mayor. And 
in a very Iowa way, uh, this all came to head at the county fair where a couple of the mayor's friends had parked in the fire lane at the Kasuth County Fair. And my father was told by the fire chief that these cars were blocking the fire access. And my dad told the chief, well, if they don't move, you have to ticket and tow them. They didn't move, they got ticketed, they got towed. And at the next council meeting, it's hard to believe this, but this is 1986, not as much transparency, not as much viral videos at the time. The mayor calls my dad to the carpet and says, if you don't get rid of those tickets, uh, I'm going to fire you. And my dad did not yield, did not bend. Uh, he stood firm and said, no one's above the law. And so the mayor, with the help of some others on the council, uh, ultimately was able to fire my dad. And at five years old, I remember seeing my dad you know, pretty upset about losing his job felt ashamed, felt embarrassed, but as bad as those feelings were, was not willing to join the mayor and his corrupt friends in, in corrupting himself. And so we moved our little family out West and for the rest of my life, you know, I have tried to live by that principle, which is to do the right thing, even if it means losing your job. And that has really presented itself in the last couple of years as I've worked on multiple impeachments now of Donald Trump and have been frustrated by so many Republicans who know what he has done is wrong, was wrong, and were unwilling to do anything to lose their own job. Uh, there's very few, Adam Kinzinger, Liz Cheney, or a few that you know have done the right thing, recognize what it's going to mean for them professionally. They remind me more of my dad than anyone else on their side. And that's just been a, a guiding principle that I've tried to live by. You know, it's interesting you bring up the impeachment. You were a notable player in the impeachment process, and twice the House of Representatives voted to impeach Donald Trump. Twice the Senate refused to convict him of those charges. Can you explain to the listeners what an impeachment means if the Senate refuses to hold the one who was impeached accountable with a conviction? Does it mean anything? In the court of the Senate, it means that you're acquitted, which is interesting because in the most recent impeachment trial, 57 senators voted guilty. We needed 67 to see Donald Trump disqualified from holding future office. In my book, in my mind, uh, 57 is closer to a conviction than an acquittal. Uh, you know, a majority of the Senate voted to convict, but functionally, uh, he was acquitted and could seek public office again. I would say practically, though, he is disqualified from holding office because in the court of public opinion, outside the court of the Senate, 57% of Americans said after the trial that they do not believe Donald Trump should ever again be allowed to hold office. So I, I think we were making our case to the jurors, but we were also making our case to the American people, and we were also making our case uh, to history. You support a lot of very progressive initiatives, especially as they are related to human rights issues, domestic affairs, LGBT equality, uh, issues of that nature. Do you ever have an opportunity to totally off the record, in private, talk with Republican colleagues that will say to you, we can find a way to support these initiatives if you 
can back off of A, B, or C? Or is it just, are we at a place where the line in the sand is just not going to get crossed? Well, Bob, I, I think what's frustrating, and this relates to the filibuster in the Senate, is that a lot of the progressive issues I support are widely supported by the American people. And so while Republicans in Congress may want to compromise, the American people have already spoken. I'll give you an example. We're going to vote today on background checks. 85% of the American people believe we should have background checks on firearm purchases. So to me, what, what do you compromise on when you have a Republican party in Congress that is wildly out of step with where the American people are? The DREAM Act, same thing. About 90% of Americans believe that uh, dreamers should have a pathway to citizenship. Two-thirds of Americans, you know, support, uh, two-thirds or more support acting on climate. And then, you know, I can go on and on. And the Voting Rights Act, uh, I believe it's uh, near 70% in a uh, poll that another podcast uh, had run, a change poll that was run. And so what you're seeing, and, and going back to where we started this conversation with the COVID relief bill, again, 70 plus percent Americans, including about 40% of Republicans polled support COVID relief. And so you have Republicans in Congress, again, whether it's to show unity among themselves or just to be reflexively oppositional, they want you to, to compromise, but the American people aren't telling us on these issues that they want us to compromise. They're, they're asking for us to act. And so while I, I do think we have to collaborate where we can, where there is wide consensus among the American people, you know, we should lean in and, and try and meet that consensus. And you're going to see the House of Representatives pass a lot of, you know, bills in the next couple of weeks that will be on the doorstep of the Senate. And the Senate has a choice to make. They can either allow the filibuster, you know, to prevent widely popular policies from being enacted, or they can meet the American people where they are, sign them into law. And also, if you're worrying about politics, know that if 70 plus percent of Americans support whatever issue you're using the filibuster, you're breaking the filibuster to pass, you're not going to pay a political price for doing it. Well, unfortunately, there wasn't a compromise on the increase of the federal minimum wage, and it was excluded from the Senate COVID relief bill. Minimum wage has been debated now for many years, but it's not just Republicans who are necessarily holding up the minimum wage uh, initiative. There are Democrats in the Senate that are not supporting the increase. Senator Kristen Sinema of Arizona represents a constituency in a state where the minimum wage is already $11 per hour. However, in West Virginia, Senator Joe Manchin represents a constituency where the minimum wage is $8.75 per hour. Now, in California, where you're from, the minimum wage is $12 an hour. So, and rising. And rising. Okay. So is there an argument for a minimum wage to be determined at the state level based on economic conditions? Or do you consider it's the right of every American to earn an equal living wage, regardless of where they live in the United States? The federal minimum wage, as far as I'm concerned, is a, is a backstop. And if the states want to, because of the cost of living, like California, you know, enact higher minimum wages, or if a county wants to enact a higher minimum wage because Shasta County in California 
has a lower cost of living than Alameda County, where I represent a congressional district, then Alameda County should be able to enact a higher minimum wage. But I, I do believe that there has to be, you know, kind of a baseline and $15 an hour, you know, spread out over the next four years to me is, is not unreasonable. And, you know, that we should be, as I said, that backstop against, you know, what could be, I think, a harmful state minimum wage uh, policy. And so, I, again, I, I hope we can find a way to do this. And I also think, you know, tying it to some measure of inflation, once you set it, also would probably serve us all well to not have to have this as a political football, you know, every couple of years. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't, I think, until it, the last time passed was in 2008 or so. And, and so we really, we should set it right now, you know, with a national cost of living standard, let the states do what they need to do to reflect their own local issues, and then tie it to inflation, at least for that backstop purpose, uh, so that we're not always seeing this as a political football. Are those kind of conversations happening within the halls of Congress? I think, yes. You know, Speaker Pelosi is, is determined to find a way for us to have, you know, a, a standalone minimum wage bill uh, again, and, you know, to get that over to the Senate. And again, I, I if this is an issue where we have to compromise, um, again, if we can just, if we can raise it as much as possible, that would serve so many Americans. You know, the minimum wage is also a majority of, a, more than a majority of Americans support raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And, and so I think we should reflect the will of the American people. So looking at this particular subject matter, the minimum wage, as it relates to the Senate rules and process for getting a bill through the Senate, the biggest hurdle there for this particular legislation is going to be the filibuster. This is something that has been talked about and talked about, and I honestly don't think the majority of the American people actually understand what the filibuster actually means to them. Do you think the filibuster is an archaic rule in the Senate, or do you believe there is still a purpose for it to remain? It's time to complete the circle on the filibuster. It was put in place to block voting rights, and I believe we should end it to advance voting rights uh, by starting with H.R. 1, which we've passed in the House, which would expand uh, voting rights protections. And so by using the filibuster uh, or breaking the filibuster to advance voting rights, I, I think that would be quite symbolic uh, because it, it is a relic of Jim Crow, a, a relic of stopping African-Americans from having access to the polls. And too often it, it has been used to block policies that are, as I said earlier, you know, popular with the American people because it helps the American people. I understand the argument that in 2017, the Republicans, theoretically, if there was no filibuster, could have banned abortion. And my counter argument to that would be banning abortion does not have support of the, of the majority amount of Americans. And so if you are going to break the filibuster to put into legislation something that is not popular, then you're going to pay a political price for it. And, and yes, it, it would be unfortunate for the period of time that we would have to live under a law like that. Of course, it would still be challenged in the courts. But 
if you break it to get background checks, if you break it to advance voting rights, if you break it, you know, to enact climate action, I don't think you're going to pay a political price for it. I, I think the political price is that if you won the majorities in the House and the Senate and you didn't do anything, voters may ask, well, why the hell did we put you in charge of leading the government? It almost sounds like you're saying that the filibuster is actually inhibiting transparency in the Senate on some level. Would you agree with that? I would say it, it's inhibiting the will of the American people from being enacted. And again, it, it, if you are in a lust for power and are trying to enact policies that don't have support of the majority of Americans, then you're going to pay a political price for doing that. And that's why you know, I, I think you should really only you know, break it uh, when a minority is stopping something that has overwhelming support from being passed. I don't think that that doesn't make sense to most Americans. And also, by the way, the filibuster, it's, it's, a, it's an insider Washington tool where most Americans think that majority rules. That's just kind of, you know, how they run their lives, whether you're on a local school board, serve on a Rotary Club or a Lions Club. Typically, if you're taking a vote and everyone's raising their hands, the side that has the most hands up wins. But you would have to agree at some point, specifically as it relates to human rights initiatives, that the majority shouldn't be allowed to implement legislation that adversely impacts the minority in, in those particular situations. Give me an example. So, for example, let's talk about LGBT equality and the right to marry. If the majority of the country at one time— and and let's say it still was the case, voted to, in fact, I think it happened in the state of California. They voted Prop 8, yeah. Prop 8 to eliminate same-sex marriage. That is a human right, a civil right that the majority took away from the minority. Yes. Do we not need protections against that as, no, as, as it relates yeah. to majority rule? Yeah, absolutely. Um we do. And I think the best protections, you know, in, in that case came, you know, from the courts, uh, you know, that it, it went to the courts. Thankfully, um, in the court, we were able to see that overruled and then functionally across the states, you know, states enacted their own uh, protections. And as you pointed out, uh, in the Republicans, I would argue, also paid a, a big political price uh, for that. And, and because they paid a price now today, I think among the Republican Party, you know, that's, you know, anti-marriage is not as high on their platform planks as it was before. Um, so, you know, yeah, the point definitely taken. And, and that's why I would argue that the political backlash, if you were to use the filibuster, you know, to do something that is unpopular um, to advance some cultural priority, as I, I use the example of abortion, that you would pay a price uh, for doing it um, politically. And then hopefully also the action would be reversed in the courts. I don't see anything that we would seek to break the filibuster on that one would be viewed as the tyranny of the majority um, as far as human rights goes. And, and two, because I don't believe in any human rights are invoked on some of the legislative items I just laid out. But two, I also don't see any of the issues that we'd be advancing would 
would face scrutiny in the courts. Um, you know, it, it seems like these are areas where the law is rather settled and they're just, they have indicated in prior rulings that they're political questions and that Congress, you know, has to decide. Them. So you are a supporter of clean energy. You yes. support opportunities that these technologies can provide to the American people. But a lot of these initiatives have been interpreted as antagonistic to the oil and gas industry. The various legislative initiatives from the far left to the far right have all had plenty of detractors to go around, resulting in a lot of finger pointing. I'm sure you're very aware that in Texas, a couple of weeks ago, Texas has the most independent power grid in the country, and it nearly came to a complete and total failure, placing millions of Americans without power for several days, causing billions of dollars in property damage and several deaths. To say the least, energy solutions aren't simple. But moving forward, would you support a national grid? And is there a legislative solution to the fossil fuel industry when you have large segments of the population in states like West Virginia and Texas who almost entirely rely on the fossil fuel industry as a foundation for their state's economy. I do support, you know, using infrastructure dollars to invest in a smart national grid. You know, I, I am sorry for the people of Texas for what happened to them. Uh, it sounds awful. It looked awful. Uh, people died. Uh, it was awful. Of, I experienced it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and where where are you there? We're in Dallas, Dallas, Texas. Yep. yep. And I, I was pinging um, and calling friends uh, there who had burst pipes or had not had water uh, for over a week. Yeah, it, it's something that should not be experienced in a in a country as great as ours with as many resources as ours. And and you're right. There, there's not one. Uh, there's not a silver bullet that would have you know, fix this issue. But when you break it down, you know, not being FERC regulated, you know, prevented, you know, other resources from other states from helping Texans, not weatherizing uh, the wind energy, uh, you know, despite the claims that the Green New Deal, which apparently Greg Abbott enacted without anyone knowing about it, is the reason that Texas had this happen. Uh, no, it was not because the windmills are not able to produce energy, the wind turbines in cold. It's just they did not weatherize them. I've been to Antarctica and I've seen wind turbines in the harshest conditions produce energy. So it was a failure to invest fully in wind. Uh, it was also, you know, I, I believe it demonstrated that if you don't have a diversity of resources, uh, you know, what can happen. And so in the future, I hope that we have in the next couple months a massive infrastructure bill uh, that takes on not only surface and road and rail uh, infrastructure, but also broadband and energy grids and, and really diversifies our supply, uh, recognizes that fossil fuel. And, and I, I know the fossil fuel economy uh, is important in Texas. I'm not a member of Congress who wants to just go to a light switch and, and turn off the fossil fuel economy. I, I understand that until we can fully, you know, develop, you know, clean energy resources, we need to have a bridge between a fossil fuel economy and a clean energy economy, uh, just practically, because that's the case. But also, I, I know people work hard and they break their back every day in jobs that are fossil fuel jobs. And, you know, they need to have a bridge to this new economy as well. And I, I think we can do all of that in 
that clean energy, as long as people associate it not only with a cleaner earth, uh, but also with a job, uh, we can get it right. So you were elected to Congress in 2012. You were the most notable, uh, successful freshman congressman as it relates to introducing legislation and actually getting it signed into law. What's your legislative goal this particular Congress? Well, it's nice to no longer have to be Donald Trump's probation officer. You know, I felt like I had that job <laughs> for the last four years. So that's freed up some time. And I really look forward to getting back uh, to, to really focusing on gun violence prevention. That That's a big priority for me. That's part of the reason I ran for Congress as a prosecutor who worked on homicide cases. Look forward to working on issues in the innovation economy, especially around bringing down healthcare costs through uh, healthcare innovation. And then as a dad of you know two little kids who is 40 years old and still has about $100,000 in student loan debt, I know there are uh, millions like me uh, who are affected by that. And I want to see in the next two years, you know, serious student loan debt reforms put in place so that people have more money to buy a car, start a business, start a family. Well, those are very significant initiatives that we will be following and supporting you on. I know a lot of my listeners obviously are just like myself, very progressive in our thought process. And so we look forward to seeing you uh, succeed on those uh, those platforms. I have to ask you, you were a candidate for president of the United States at one time. Do you see that in your future, returning to the presidential uh, arena? I got the vaccine for that, so I don't think so. <laughs> I learned a lot. And uh, the advice I give our interns is to not just focus on an office and do everything you can to try and achieve that office, but rather focus on issues and you'll find the offices to serve in. And after the 18 midterms, I was so inspired by, you know, young people, especially around the issue of gun violence, you know, engaging and stepping up and, and young people coming to Congress that I wanted to be a candidate in 2020 that would bring these generational issues. The right candidate won, the most experienced candidate, especially in a pandemic one. And as I said, I'm going to get back to work in the House on these issues and, you know, let the issues you know, drive, you know, where I go. Well, Congressman, let me thank you so much for joining us today. It has truly been a pleasure to have you on the show. Great. Thanks so much, Bob. I, I enjoy listening and look forward uh, to what you have in, in the future to push uh, a progressive agenda. Thank you so much. You bet. And thank you for joining us today on Breaking Protocol with Bob Sadowick. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Congressman Swalwell, and please click and subscribe for notification of future episodes. If you haven't had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy, it is available at your favorite online retailer or for download to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. Have a beautiful day and many blessings.